Hi there, um, welcome to Hempson's Podcasts. My name's Stephen Rautos. I'm uh, joined today by Jill Muir and Stephen Wade. And as you know, Hempson's is a specialist health and social care law firm. Jill and I are partners in the Newcastle office and part of the healthcare litigation team, which spans all five of the Hempson's offices. Stephen Wade is um, one of our associates in the Newcastle office and he, he does the healthcare litigation work as well. Today, we're going to be looking at um, pre-action correspondence. Basically, we're talking about letters of claim, um, letters of notification, what you do when you get those, how you deal with them, those initial steps you might be taking on. Yes, and when we say the early stages, it's not always that early, is it? It can often be two or three years down the line from the treatment complained about. Uh, exactly, and I think that's a problem with uh, this, this sort of area of, uh, of, of law and the, the features of the claims that we deal with is that uh, they often come several years down the line and uh, that sometimes can kick up problems when you're thinking about what happened back <clears throat> a couple of years ago and uh, witness recall and documentation as well. Yeah, that's that's right. It, may, it makes it very tricky, doesn't it, on some cases. Um, what What's the first thing we're looking at then when, when you get that letter through, the you know, headed letter of claim? Um, or, or, or maybe not. I mean, maybe that's the question. What, what's the first thing you're thinking, Jill? Well, it's going to depend on what you've received. It might be a letter of notification or it might be or, or purport to be a formal letter of claim. It has to be read, obviously, to see what the content is and consider if it's been put as a formal complaint rather than a legal claim. Um, and we see that quite often especially if someone maybe hasn't consulted a solicitor yet. They might be the, the patient sending in a letter, unhappy with an unexpected outcome for medical treatment, or it might be a family member. Yeah, and, and I, I suppose that's quite important, really, in terms of how we deal with a complaint in a different way to a claim and how we might respond to that. Yeah, I think as well, the, what the... Uh, the person writing the letter or the uh, the representative is, is looking to get out of it is is key as well because while they um, you'll, you'll have a lot of overlap between a complaint and uh, and legal proceedings more often than not a, a complaint is just somebody looking for answers to questions that they have and wanting to understand what's gone on with their treatment um, if the person's looking to bring a claim then. Um, often the the issues are, are more sort of legal based and they're, they're looking for things more than just answers and it's often uh, financial compensation rather than anything else by the time they get to that stage. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and I think it, it's often the case as well that complaints can end up as claims if we if we don't answer those questions and, and provide them with the explanations and um, help it, help answer their questions, then, then they will necessarily feel the next step to get those answers is is through a legal process. Um, and, and they may not have wanted to do that initially. They may just have wanted some some questions answering, but they feel forced into a, a legal route and, and almost by accident, it, it becomes a claim. So. Yes, one of the key issues when these letters come in is is reporting, reporting to the appropriate person. So if it's a trust or a GP, these letters really should be reported to insurers, be that the MDU, the MPS or NHS resolution. And there's various criteria about how these are reported, but a claim for compensation is always going to be a trigger 
for reporting these claims. And if you're in doubt when you get one of these letters, please speak to us or have a look at the, the respective web websites of the indemnity providers in question, and they will make it clear what the reporting processes are when you receive one of these letters. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and, and I think it's in terms of unsure, that unsureness between a claim and a complaint, it's always better to have that discussion, isn't it? Um, and and then you know, the NHS resolution or, or whoever it is can then help you make a decision about whether that's a complaint or, or a letter of claim that you need to be investigating and um, treating as a claim. Um, so, so yeah, you know, th those discussions early on are very important. Um, so uh, let's let's say we've kind of we've identified it is a letter of claim. We we, we then need to start looking at what we do with it. Um, I, I think in many ways, it, whether it's a claim or a, a complaint, the investigations will be, be similar. But fundamentally, it's a document, isn't it? That That's what these cases will will be around is, is the medical records um, and, and it's, it's getting those records and starting to review them and work out um, what has happened uh, and whether it fits with what is um, contended for. Um, but but it's not just the records. I, I often think that is kind of the, the easy way to look is to think, well, let's get the records. But actually, there, there's a lot when we say documents, it's not just the records, things like the policies in place um that would have applied at the time and, all, and also starting to think about um, how we consider those documents and those records and how we get the staff involved for their comments and um how we how we get their views on it um i, I think this is quite a, a tricky one on on letter of uh, the letter of plain stage because it's quite tempting really to look look for someone senior and um and get them to provide their comments uh, a kind of quasi expert view on the case um i mean i don't know what was your thoughts as as to whether you you do that as a first step or whether or whether you kind of go and try and find those individual clinicians involved um i don't know Joe, what, what what do you think do you do you like an initial overview on the case early on or? oh i like everything <laughs> I would always ask for, well, it depends on the facts, doesn't it? If um, if it's a consent issue, so say somebody is saying that the registrar did not um, make them fully aware and have a, a full discussion about what the risks of a procedure were, then I, I think you really need comments from that clinician, not just the supervising consultant, because that consultant will be able to say what the, the standard consent process might be, but they weren't there. Um, and I think in those situations, you really need direct evidence from the individual clinician as to what was said by whom, to whom and when. Um, because yeah. those types of cases, as we know, can come down to he said, she said, or he didn't say, or she didn't say. So. I would look at the actual facts and then take a view. Um, I know that sometimes we try and protect junior clinicians. Um, you don't want to add extra stress to their day to day. What can be busy and stressful uh, roles. Definitely. But yeah, yeah it, it tends to be fact specific. But if it's a, 
a very high, a potentially high value brain injured baby case, then again, I would want statements from everybody. If it's a missed fracture, you probably don't need statements from everybody who saw this person when they came in and were triaged in an emergency department. But then again, it might be helpful. Mr Wade, what yeah. would you? Yeah, I'd, I'd echo that. I think it's it's about proportionality. You don't want to sort of get everything from everyone if it's a, a fairly straightforward and, and low value potential claim. But um, equally, if there are going to be important factual issues that only a certain member of staff can address, then it's, it's going to be relevant that you're going to have to have um, that input. Um, my, my, my personal view would be that you yeah, you would try to uh, avoid the the junior uh, clinicians as much as you can, and unless, as you say, that there's a there's a clear factual consent type issue where you need to have them involved. Um, obviously, if it's a if it's a GP claim, then the um, <clears throat> the individual practitioners are going to uh, more likely than not need to give their input in terms of the, the consultations that they had with the uh, with the patient. Um, but again, you, you would look at the records and you look at what is, is being investigated by the, the claimant and, and see where the, the real pinch point lies and uh, what input you need to, to get your investigations going. Um, yeah. yeah, definitely. definitely. Well, well, I mean, in, in a sense as well, I mean, there's a question, isn't there, about uh, the point at which we start doing all these, because you're both talking about the need for quite quite a few people potentially to be be commenting certainly on those high value cases now we get four months from from date of receipt from of the letter of claim to prepare our response to it now there's a question isn't there about how we use that time period and and in fact whether we actually accept that time periods running because you know, I've, I've seen a lot of letters of claim that you see and you you know that they're not based on any expert evidence. They're not based on any. Um, they're, they're 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 very sparse in terms of the detail, and they don't really set out a very clear case on what we should be answering. Um, now, I mean, this is where the trickiness comes in because, of course, I I, I think do we start investigating on what we have, um, or or do we simply go back to the claimant solicitors and say, well, actually, we're not going to treat this as a letter of claim and we're not really going to do anything with it until you tell us exactly what you are alleging on, particularly causation. I often find that it's, it's quite easy for the claimant solicitors to set out what they say went wrong, but they're, they're less good at setting out clearly how on the balance of probability the outcome would have differed. But I, I tend to be fairly reluctant to just say to people, well, look, <clears throat> we're not going to treat this as a letter of claim and until you clarify it we're not going to to do anything um i, I don't know what what's your view Stephen? have you do you do you take quite a kind of an aggressive approach in terms of getting those clarifications in or um and also do you wait till you have clarification before you go to your clinicians um which is, is another question isn't it but i mean how much do you go back to the to the solicitors on a letter of claim and start to drill down into exactly what they're alleging. One of the uh, things that you'd say about pre-action 
letters of claim that you get is that the, the quality can be variable and, and sometimes you can tell that the, the claimant solicitors have, have done their, their legwork and they've got expert evidence and they've uh, really carefully thought through what it is that they, they want to say, uh, whereas other times they've got uh, instructions from the the patient and that's the basis for their for their claim and they're, they're essentially just taking a punt. Um, but I mean there's obviously something there that they want to pursue so I think that the balance does favour us also looking into it um, and trying to sort of get ahead of uh, the, uh, the allegations that might follow if they're not particularly good at the, at the outset. Um, because you, you, you get cases where the the, the allegations are, are quite sparse, but if there's something there, then you can save a lot of uh, time and expense by uh, getting your case sorted out early on, making admissions if you need to, and uh, and trying to get the matter resolved sooner rather than later. Uh, so I think on on balance, I think you you would look to investigate even if you uh, try. In the meantime to get a bit more detail and a bit more clarity from the other side as to what it is that they're actually saying went wrong yeah so so it's kind of provided they've given us enough that we know broadly speaking what they're what they're suggesting and what they're well what they're wanting to be investigated really isn't it and then roughly speaking what they're suggesting should have been avoided and that will usually be fairly clear, won't it? Um, even if the actual details of the allegations themselves aren't clear, the gist of it will allow us to to move forwards. Um, I've tended to find as well that there's, uh, I don't know about you, Jill, but I've not done many letters of response that haven't been based on some expert evidence because it, I think we've got risks if we if we don't, prepare that letter of response based on expert evidence that that we then find that particulars of claim gets served and we're all of a sudden playing catch up when costs are escalating. Yes, I think the only time I would consider that is where there's been already at the time of receiving the letter of claim, there might have been a full investigation. Uh, there could have been a serious incident report following a death, something like that. Um, and some, t well, we're talking about responding with our expert evidence, aren't we? Sometimes in those reports, I'm yeah. aware the trusts can get involvement of independent experts to give their comments. Um, yes, I would also be very cautious about doing that. It, it would be a very rare occasion where you would do a letter of response without that input. Um, and even if you have clinicians saying, absolutely, there was no substandard care here, um, I personally would tend to want some backup for that to give that support to the clinicians so that we're then able to say in the letter of response, the clinicians are saying this, but also we have an independent expert which backs up exactly what the clinician is saying and therefore liability is denied um, yeah. for that reason. And I think that gives you a stronger position to work from in the hope that you've got a detailed response, you're telling them you've got expert evidence backing it up, and then hopefully they will think very carefully about whether to proceed with this claim or let it fold now. If, yeah. if family are, are working with a solicitor on a no win, no fee agreement, it's almost like you're giving the, the, the family solicitor reason to have a good think about whether to proceed further. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, that that's right. It is it is an opportunity to persuade them, isn't it? So, what's your approach to when we actually draft that letter of response? Do you, I mean I've always done it in a way that I, I like to think. I'm not sure if it always happens, but I like to think that it actually gets read by the family or the, or the claimant themselves. So I put a slightly different language in in it compared to a letter to solicitors um, to, to, to try and explain a bit more um, rather than lots of legal language. And I don't know about you, but I don't I try not to keep the Latin. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think most lawyers don't these days, but you know, do, there's that, but it's also this balance, isn't it, between a, a detailed letter of response or, or a nice short and snappy one, which then is nice and clear to the to the yeah. family, so they understand. Well, look, there is no claim. Yeah, I think you've got to make it clear. Um, personally, I think I would tend to put in as much detail as possible based on any independent expert reports or clinician comments, so that the family have more of that explanation. And I, I think sometimes if you're too short and snappy and basically say liability is denied, and I know the protocol means we have to give an explanation, but sometimes if the explanation is particularly brief, I think it could cause upset and make a family and a claimant solicitor want to pursue it further. Um, but it, it, it's always a balancing act, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think, I think they can sometimes look at that and think we've not really considered the issues. Yeah. Um, because it's just a kind of deny, 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 instead of deny and why. Um, so yeah, do you ever serve? Do either of you ever serve your expert reports with the letter of response, uh, on on a, or, or alongside it on a without prejudice basis, perhaps? Or, or is that something you'd consider? I think you would consider it. I, I don't know how often you would do that in practice. Uh, it's it's there as an option. I think you, I, I like Jill, I would I would try and use my letter of response to essentially say what's in the expert evidence um, and make it as persuasive as as it can be. Um, and it depends, I suppose, on how uh, reasonable your claimant solicitor is and how much uh, traction you'll you'll get with them if you if you go down the route of um, exchanging your expert evidence early. Uh, you, you might find that claimant solicitors are a bit reluctant to um, let us have sight of their expert evidence before we get too far down into, into the proceedings, but it's certainly something that yeah, encourage if, uh, if, if you can do, if you know you've got a, a solid expert behind you um, and you can put that in front of the uh, the claimant and and show them that look there is a different view here to what you you've been told by your solicitor or or your expert um then it, it, it might well just give them that doubt that, yeah that, that questioning as to whether it is something that they wanted to go ahead with yes yeah and and, and particularly if there's a complex area that um expert evidence can help almost signpost them to understanding the evidence a bit better in that they they can see that we're not simply just putting our view clear what an what an expert and it, and it also if your experts are very well respected person it can help persuade as well can't it when their expert sees who they'd be up against mm -hmm. <clears throat> and there might be things that their expert hasn't 
thought about that yeah. is uh, is detailed in in our expert evidence and that, that might prompt a, a rethink and uh, a reframing of the claim or or yeah. no claim at all yeah ab ab absolutely absolutely um when i was saying a few minutes ago about um how i draft a letter of response for it to be read by the claimants themselves it also it, that kind of makes me think about apologies and um how we do those and, and also apologies separate to letters of response really because i think it, as we spoke about right at the very start the the question of complaint versus claim i think there's also a, a difference isn't there very a very important difference to identify between a difference between apology and uh, an admission and um, making sure that we get early apologies if necessary um, sometimes it will be detailed within the letter of response but uh, but my, my view is it tends to be sensible to put a, se uh, a separate apology um, and, and that is then going to the family or, or the claimant and, and they see that apology and the apology doesn't mean an, admit, an admission um, and and it can be sometimes a very limited issue that we we need to be apologizing for compared to the wide issue that the claim has um, but i but i think it's very important to get that out there you know, if, if our evidence is suggesting we need to be apologizing yeah patients and families can really appreciate that can't they um yeah when i did claimant work for many years you would often have people and the first thing they would say to you is if i just had an apology i wouldn't be here and you think well let's investigate it. But if you then find that there is a valid claim here, you think, oh, all of this time, legal cost could have been avoided potentially if there'd been an early apology. Um, you still have some claimants who weren't as bothered about the apology and were still seeking compensation in any event. But yeah, definitely. I think it can go an awful long way to make a family feel that that it was okay for them to bring a claim, that it was entirely appropriate and it's going to make working together, you know, on each side of, of the line an awful lot easier going forward if you've got an apology in place and you then work together to to reach an appropriate compromise. Yeah, I I, th I think so. I think I think it very very much helps. Yeah, I mean I, I've I've had many cases where at a mediation or settlement meeting that issue of well we want a, an apology it becomes a something that needs to be agreed and settled as, as much as the the numbers on the on the check um which shouldn't be the case we should should have that apology shouldn't be something we're holding back um, yeah absolutely needing to make it we should be getting it out there out there early on um what one thing i was thinking about is um Letters of claim. I think we you know, clinicians and um, GPs and, and trusts see them, see a lot of them. It's not always that we're going to get a claim, are we? I know we've had a letter of claim, um, but not all letters of claim turn into that um, day in court for the um, the clinician who's, who's extremely worried about standing up and explaining their treatment. Uh, I mean, what's your experience? I mean, do, I, I tend to think a decent letter of response can help avoid those pr proceedings and, and it's not it's not inevitable that letter of claim equals day in court. No and, and the amount of cases that actually end up in front of a, a judge are vanishingly small by, by comparison to the number of cases that will be 
uh, investigated by a claimant solicitors. Um, but you're right. I mean, I think the the more you can do when you're dealing with uh, the the other side just through correspondence um, before you you get to the stage of them feeling it's necessary to issue uh, legal proceedings, the better. Um, and as I say, if you can if you can persuade or cast doubt in the the minds of the 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 claimants team that you know the it's not necessarily as clear cut as they might initially think it to be. Um, you may well uh, persuade them to uh, abandon the claim, or if you uh, do enough to say, "Oh well, maybe this isn't uh, going to go uh, as as smoothly as as we'd thought," that might open up avenues to uh, look at other means of resolving the case through settlement negotiations or or, or mediations or yeah, discussions mediation. that can happen before you get into court proceedings that whether it's a a financial settlement or whether it's some just people getting together and discussing it and, and working out what went wrong that might be enough for uh, some claimants i think it's looking at this letter of this pre-action stage as, a, as an opportunity isn't it, to, to focus the case to try and understand the the claim that's being brought to try and help of shape those proceedings sometimes proceedings will will follow and sometimes they have to follow obviously um for court approval or or various issues but is the in this pre-action stage we can help hold the, and push the case in a particular direction for, for um so, so that we've narrowed the issues um, and the way we can really do that is with early engagement from clinicians um, who give us comments or statements about exactly what happened as close as possible to the events in question so that memories are clear and we can then show that statements have not been written 20 years later and of course an early statement has more weight than a later statement I would suggest. Yeah yeah ab absolutely and and that's that's it it's this engagement in the pre-action stage is important we shouldn't just allow the idea of well it's not yet a formal claim let's let's wait on our investigations with the staff let's wait on our expert evidence well no it's still an opportunity now let's let's do it before it's probably as we said right at the start two or three years already since the since the treatment in question let's not leave it another two or three years before we start start looking at things and, and trying to remember it all so so yeah let, let's make sure so um wrapping things up then so um i guess that could be your was that your top tip then jill kind of i would say yeah definitely yeah. a top tip early engagement get the clinicians on board tell them it's going to save them time in the long run yeah yeah definitely Stephen. a top tip from you um don't be afraid to to ask for help. Get your uh, claims reported to your indemnity provider, whether that's NHS Resolution or one of the defence organisations. That's what they're there for. They will help you through the process. So uh, get it reported. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, my, my top tip I was going to say about apologies again. Um, and don't assume everything should needs to end up adversarial. Now that we've had a letter of claim and apology, it's not an admission. 
and and as as Jill was saying that, that an apology can help perhaps help more more than you think it would so so that would be mine but excellent well thank you very both for for joining joining today and and thank you all for listening um we'd love to hear from you with your any comments you have um any suggestions for particular areas you'd like us to discuss in our our future podcasts um um obviously you can email me at um s for stephen maritos at tempsons.co.uk and and i think my details and, and jill and stevens are also on the Hempsons website and uh thanks very much Bye.